Now, if you've got your Bibles open, if you have not yet, to Mark chapter 8. This is where we're going to be this morning as we continue our series in the Gospel of Mark. Now, I just put on some glasses that may look very unusual uh, because I don't wear glasses typically until recently because I am in my mid-40s and... Um, and the things that are in distance, distance to me are becoming slightly more blurry over time. Um, and, uh, and so I had a, a, uh, a, a doctor's appointment for, my, for some glasses. Probably the first time I've seen a doctor for my eyes, it, I can't remember. It's been, it was probably when I was a kid and they forced you to do that at school or something like that. Um, but if you have, I'm going to take these off because I don't, I don't like them. Um, and I think it's like late night or when I'm, you know, driving or something that I'm supposed to wear those, but I've, I, I am having a difficulty wearing them because it feels like I've got fish bowls like on my eyes, <laughs> but they're serving some purpose. But if you have not been to a, a, a doctor's appointment to get your eyes checked in some, some time, um, as I hadn't, I, I had to stick that weird contraption on my face that, uh, it's actually called, I think it's called a Forropter, and uh, it's a pretty scary looking device. Um, I don't know if the thing's going to like fly and take off, or it's going to sever a limb from my body. It's, uh, it's quite a, an ingenious piece of technology, um, but you, you know the drill, right? You put your face uncomfortably in it, and you have to begin reading the chart on the wall, and they start with the very large letters in the top, usually that giant E and you work your way through, and the doctor's saying, you know, clear, less clear, no, yes, and he just keeps flipping and things, and you're trying to work your way down that, those lines and find a clear bottom line as opposed to looking like a blob. But you're trying to fudge, like, what really it is, like, it's a cue, I don't know. But it's, it's a wonderful device to help bring a prescription for correction. And the work of the doctor is necessary so that your, your sight could be clear. And it is the work of the doctor. And as we are seeing for these disciples and the work of Jesus, the good physician and the king, he, he is helping his disciples see. This theme that we've been walking through in the past few weeks even. And Mark is capturing for us this this reality, this identity of who Jesus is. And Mark has been hammering this as we've been going through these first chapters of this book. We're seeing this big, the big E at the top of the line. And Jesus in all his glory, all his power, his authority, his authority over creation, his authority over demons, his authority to forgive sins. He, he is the sovereign son of God with all power and all authority. And this is becoming clearer and clearer to us. Yet one of the parts, one of the lines of his identity, specifically why he came, is, is still very blurry. If we're just tracking the narrative with the disciples, more clarity has to come to see the fullness of who Jesus is and why he came. And this morning we're going to get the ability to see that a little bit more clearly. So let's read our text and then we're going to pray. We're going to be reading from verse, verses 22 through 
30 this morning in chapter 8. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, and he led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, and they, they look like trees walking. And then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly, and he went, and he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told them, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Let us pray. Lord, we... We thank you for the privilege to gather, to gather as your people this morning. This is a gift. This is a gift to, to come and to, to sing and to praise and to worship and to, to lift your name up and to be reminded of your grace given to us in your work, Jesus, and, and to glorify your name and to feel the, the good of being together with others in doing that. Lord, let us, let us just, just pause and help our hearts to remember that we didn't make this happen. Lord, we, we didn't clue, clue in by our own power and intellect to the good of all of this. It is a gift of you. And so let us, let us just pause and thank you for that, that gift. And, and we want to feel the good and the beauty of that even more deeply and we need your spirit to give us sight to know that, to feel that, to delight in that. So we ask you to come, Holy Spirit, and help us to know that as we hear your words, Jesus, to us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, the first thing we're going to see is this situation with this blind man and the, this multi-stage thing that Jesus does. So the disciples have, says they came to Bethsaida. Now this area, this location is the North Sea of Galilee. It's on the east side of the Jordan River where the Jordan flows into the Sea of Galilee. There's a map up there just to kind of capture actually where the disciples are going to be heading in the, this next section of our narrative. And there, there's a blind man that was, that was brought to Jesus. And some friends brought this blind man to Jesus and they begged him to heal this man. And then Jesus takes this man's hand and, and leads him out of the village. I just, I just love the picture of that. Jesus takes this man by the hand and leads him. He guides him out, outside of the town. And we've seen some pattern like this before. Actually, in chapter 7, 
Jesus healed the deaf man, and he, he took him away from the crowd. And then even think about the situation with Jairus and his daughter. He, he sends everyone away, kind of the commotion, the distraction, maybe the doubters, the unbelief, away from the crowd, and he, he gets alone with this guy. And he spits and touches his eyes. Once again, a bit startling. Jesus spitting and touching this man's eyes. We saw Jesus do that earlier with a deaf man. He, he spit and touched his tongue. Now, this is not a prescription of how to do miracles. There's going to be no healing lines down here with any elder's spit. Um, we are not called to do that. This is Jesus' own unique and wise way that he is determined to heal. But Josh drew attention to this when he preached from that text about the deaf man. There, there is this, this tactile, personal touch that is very real. This man can't see, and Jesus touches his eyes. He's not just winging it with words, but he, he wants to touch people in the most deep, personal way. And Jesus does that. He does that, and he asks him, do you see anything? And the man says, I, he says, I see people, but they look like trees. This, this blurry vision, this serious nearsightedness. He can't completely see, and Jesus lays hands on him again, and it says his sight was restored. He saw everything clearly. No blur, no distortion, no confusion as to what he was seeing. There was no confusion anymore. He saw clearly. And once again, this beautiful picture of the holy touching the common, broken thing. And rather than the holy, Jesus becoming Tatan, the broken thing is actually the thing that becomes whole. And Jesus commands this man, don't, don't go through the village, just go directly home. Implied, be silent about this. Don't spread the news. Now, Jesus' work with this man was connected to somebody bringing this blind man to himself. I just, I just the observation here of how beautiful that is. The, there's obviously practical healing that Jesus is doing. Blind man and the paralytic. Remember friends that brought the paralytic man and brought him down through the roof just a reminder for each of us, just thinking about my own testimony and the way Jesus awakened my heart to the gospel. I, I didn't come to him just on my own. There were others who enabled gospel encounters to happen in my life through others. Let's don't miss the, the need for that. And maybe even your own testator, who did God use to help me come near Jesus? God wants to use others to bring others to Jesus. So considering this two-stage thing, I mean, just consider that for a moment. I mean, if I was one of the disciples, I would have thought, did Jesus kind of miss it the first time? Did Jesus fail? Did it just not stick? Now, that can't be right. Jesus didn't fail in any sense in this moment. We've witnessed the Almighty Son of God do many things just with a spoken word, right? 
So there wasn't a deficiency in Jesus's healing power in this moment. Let's understand that. Maybe the question is, is this a result of this man's unbelief? I mean, the friends brought this man to Jesus, but we don't really get a sense that that is the case. So what's going on? Well, well, Mark has captured for us eyewitness accounts of Jesus's ministry. And so first and foremost, it shows us Jesus's ongoing healing power as the son of God, as he's done with the deaf, as he's doing with this blind man, as we've seen with dad, uh, dad's daughter being raised from the dead. And so what is happening with this two-stage thing? We see Jesus healing a blind man. That's a matter-of-fact piece. But we also know that Mark is a spirit-inspired author of God's Word, capturing historic situations as they are happening and sharing with us details that the Lord wants us to see and know, as well as placing them in certain places in Scripture to bring clarity about who Jesus is. And so this literary feature of the story and the structure communicating and compounding truth for us, the hearer, and us, the reader. So what can we do to get some insight from that? Well, let's just look back from last week. If you've got your Bibles, you can even just kind of look back and remember vividly the questions Jesus is pelting his disciples with in that section of 14 through 21. The cluelessness of the disciples. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Or verse 18, having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not yet not understand? Thankful that it was still just a yet. Jesus asks, having eyes to see, do you not see? And what follows? What story follows? Jesus giving sight to a blind man. To a man who couldn't find Jesus on his own because he was blind, yet was helped by others to find Jesus. And then Jesus opening this man's eyes. But consider the process. His ability to see wasn't sudden. There were two stages. There were two parts for him to see. One line was very clear, and then others looked very blurry. What was Jesus doing? Jesus is helping us understand just the same thing that is happening to the disciples. A slow, patient process for them to see. He's helping them to see and understand who he is and why he came. He was doing that. He is the one that called them. He's the one that called them and said, I will make you fishers of men. It was Jesus's responsibility to help these disciples see, and he is making that happen. He is working towards those ends, but it's coming at a process. It's coming at a process, and it's taking time. So, so we can view this this healing of the blind man in, in stages as a, as a framework, as an illustration, a pattern for what he is doing to help the disciples see. How their eyes have been moved from partial sight to partial understanding to seeing more to more full understanding of who he is and his mission. And so how did the disciples begin to see more? Well, he's going to give them even greater insight. And this is going to be a revelation that will come by him asking questions and the work of the Spirit 
touching and illuminating their hearts. So we're going to see this, this multi-stage seeing of the heart that is happening with the disciples. So the disciples were in routes now, and likely in and around the villages of Caesarea Philippi at the foot of Mount Hermon. It's about 25 miles north of where they were in Bethsaida. We're going to consider that location again in a moment, but as they were on their way, Jesus asks them two questions. This would be unusual even for a rabbi-disciple scenario. It's usually the other way around. The disciples are asking the rabbi the, the questions, and Jesus asks them two questions, and he begins with the first one. How, what do people say that I am? The disciples' answer echoes what we've seen earlier and through Mark already, even King Herod's paranoia about John's death. People were speculating about Jesus' identity. Who is this? Is this John the Baptist raised from the dead? Others were saying, is it Elijah or a prophet like of old? Herod concluded that it was, Jesus was John back from the dead. And, and these are the same three categories, John the Baptist. And we know John was a forerunner. He was only preparatory prophet to make the way for Jesus' ministry. We see that in Mark 1. Elijah. Elijah, this powerful prophet of the Old Testament who was caught up into heaven, chariots of fire and horses showed up and they, they ripped him up in a whirlwind. And Malachi 4, 5 talks about this Elijah. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. It was an expectancy of this prophet to come. Or one of the prophets one of the great prophets Jesus would be, maybe among one of those who would bring the word of the Lord. I mean, to, consider, to be considered among this elite grouping of prophets would be astounding, kind of these hall of famers. But they all pointed to something greater, and that was Jesus who was before them. But none of those answers were correct. So Jesus answers, asked them a deeper more specific question, but who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? And we've got to kind of feel this for a moment. The disciples have asked this question of themselves personally already. We saw this in Mark chapter 4 when, when Jesus stilled the storm. They asked themselves, who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. But we don't hear an answer of how they answered that question, and Jesus doesn't ask them that question. And not everyone thought Jesus was grand and amazing. Remember back in Mark 3, Jesus' own brothers and sisters thought he was crazy. We're told that the religious leaders in Mark 3 thought that he was under the power of the devil himself. Mark 6, Jesus returns to his hometown, and everybody was offended at him because they just thought, who is this nobody? This is, this is Mary's son, the, the carpenter's son. Who is this guy? So not everyone had a positive perspective of who he was, but we know that the Father had spoken from heaven about who Jesus is. We know that demons have screamed out, who Jesus is, but Jesus hasn't posed this question to his disciples yet. So they would be left with some suspense in this moment. 
Who do you say I am? Was given to the disciples. Are they going to get it right? Are they going to drop the ball again in answering this question? Will they be clouded by what everyone else thinks about who Jesus is? Or will they be the answer themselves that question? Now remember our location in Caesarea Philippi, when Jesus poses this question, they're in the area. This city was rebuilt by Philip, one of the, one of the rulers, and he, he designated this city as uh, to, to Caesar for his glory. And so it was supposed to demonstrate in some way Rome's power and Caesar's glory and him as king and him as Lord. And also, history shows us there was a temple here dedicated to the god Pan, who was a half man, half goat. He was god of wild and livestock and shepherds. And so there's this, this pagan city, this glory that's supposed to be given to Caesar and to this, this pagan god Pan. And in the midst of all this pagan surrounding and all these cl- clouded observations of who Jesus is, this speculation of his identity, Jesus is posing this question to them. Who am I? Who am I? This is no different than where we are in our world, in our culture right now. We are surrounded by a culture that is opposition to Jesus. Maybe they have a definition of who he is, a nice teacher. Maybe even worse, he's just a historical figure. Others, something of evil. We've got plenty of false kings and false worships and false idolatry. And the disciples had to designate who they thought Jesus was alone. The disciples couldn't ride on a confession of somebody else. They had to bring a confession of who they believed Jesus was. Removing the lens of the world and what they thought it was and the crowd speculation, but what Jesus, who Jesus was to them specifically. That includes every one of us in this room. We must come to grips with that question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Mom or dad can't tell you ultimately who Jesus is and determine that for you. You must come to that conclusion. We can hear truth from mom and dad. We can hear truth from those sources, but they can't tell us who Jesus is to us. That must be a work of God. We must answer that question. So Jesus looks at them specifically in the eyes and asks them, they must answer, who am I? Who am I to you? And it's a difficult question because it, brings an obligation to what we must do in response to that, 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 that answer. There's an obligation to him and what it means to follow him based on what answer we give. And Peter answered Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. Now if we pause right there, 
There's a lot to unfold and unpack and consider and what that answer alone means. Now remember in our opening verse in Mark's gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Mark chapter 1, verse 1, we the reader, the hearer, would know Jesus is the Christ. These disciples don't know that. They are living in this real time. And even the first readers would hear that, and they would come to understand something more and the significance of, significance of that, that title as time goes. But Peter is seeing in part. He is seeing something. He is answering something accurately in this moment. And God is revealing him insight. It's interesting, Mark, that Mark doesn't give us this, this uh, detail, but we see in Matthew's account that Jesus tells Peter he is blessed. And Matthew 16, 17 says, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter came to this realization not by his own, his own smarts or his own flesh or his own wisdom. It was a work of the Father to help him see and answer that way. So let's consider this Christ, this word Christ. It's the Greek word Christ. It's a translation of the word Messiah, meaning anointed one. If you look back in Old Testament history, the, the ones who were anointed were the prophets, it were the priests and the kings, the priests to represent the people to God and God to the people, the prophet to speak God's word to the people, and the king to rule and lead God's people. The, the kings were oftentimes the focus of the framework when they considered this messianic ruler, this king that would be expectant to come. And what kind of king would this be? What kind of Messiah, this anointed one, would be the expectation? Well, the expectation would be someone who is a political ruler, a, a military leader, who had a powerful sword or an army bringing justice to the oppressors, bringing peace and righteousness to God's people. Old Testament verses that would point to and shape the Christ that would come. We see this in 2 Samuel. The Lord, through the prophet Nathan, told David that a seed would come from him, a king, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Jeremiah saw this Messiah that would come, and behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name of which he will be called. The Lord is righteous. In Psalm 2, David sung of this ruler that would come. And I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Yep. Psalm 2. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Israel was expecting a king that would rule with power and might. Vindication against enemies. A reigning king from the line of David that would supersede all of David's glorious reign. 
of power and epic proportions that would break nations that were oppressing and ruling like Roman power was doing over Israel with a rod of iron, pieces like a clay pot. This throne would be glorious. This king would be of power and might. And Jesus is this Messiah spoken of in the prophets. However, as Christ, as Messiah, how his reign would unfold and how he would defeat his enemies and what enemies he would defeat and that his path of glory would be very different from what the Jews would expect and even what his disciples were expecting. And so Peter confesses, you are the Christ. And Jesus doesn't correct that, but he does strangely just tell them, don't tell anyone about that revelation. Again, this secrecy motif that we've seen woven through Mark's gospel. And why? I think there's two reasons possibly why he tells them don't tell anyone about this. Is, is one, he didn't want the people to react incorrectly. And two, that his disciples still had much to understand. If the crowds knew that he was Messiah or Christ, or that title became connected to him, they could possibly thrust him into this mold, this expectation of who he didn't come to be, maybe politically, militarily. In John's gospel, after feeding the 5,000 5, in John 6, verse 15, it says, perceiving that they would come and take him by force and make him king, he withdrew. This was not Jesus' path as Christ. And if people get it wrong, he also knew that his disciples still had much learning to know who he was as Messiah. The disciples and Peter were still only seeing partially. They were, Peter's confession was accurate, but it was unclear and not fully understood. It was blurry. He, he needed another lens to drop so that he could see clearly. How do we know this? Let's look at verse 31 for a moment. And Jesus said, and it says that Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man, the Christ, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and, and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Now this, this would have been shocking for the disciples to hear. Wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute, Jesus. We know who the Messiah is supposed to be. We know what this king was going to be like. We've, we know our Old Testament, and this does not make sense. We, we, we know you've been coming. We've seen your authority. We've seen your glory. And... And this is shocking. A suffering, rejected Messiah? This doesn't, this doesn't comport. This does not make sense. David Garland comments, the disciples consistently misunderstand almost everything to this point. And one would not expect for the mist of their eyes suddenly to evaporate so that they now see with perfect vision. Jesus must continue to unveil the mystery of his identity to his disciples with private teaching, before they can make it known to others. An essential element is missing. 
a divinely willed death on the cross. The question is not simply who is the Messiah, but what is the Messiah? Jesus speaks plainly about his destiny and this inconceivable, disconcerting, and disappointing fate of the Messiah is the real messianic secret, which is hard for his disciples, let alone others, to fathom. You see, the real messianic secret is this revelation. Jesus is the Christ, but he must be rejected. He must be killed. And this is inconceivable, disconcerting, and a disappointing fate. But this is why he came. This is why he came, to lay his life down, to give his life as a payment for the salvation of others, and in three days rise. And his suffering was going to call his disciples to something as well, as we're going to dig into next week. This is a portion in the book of Mark And notice where Jesus says he began to teach about his mission to the disciples as the Son of Man. We have been talking about these two parts in the book of Mark, and this is what they would call the, the the hinge passage that we're beginning to go into. You can see up here the graphic of what we've been pointing to in these two sections in the book of Mark. This is just the beginning of Jesus speaking plainly about his mission, his purpose. Christ, the sovereign son of God, but also Christ who would suffer and be killed. The secret is becoming plain. The secret of him being revealed as Christ, but also Christ who would suffer. You see, one of the prophetic messages that at this time nobody connected to the Messiah, the Christ, was Isaiah's suffering servant. And now Jesus is pulling this in for the disciples to see and to hear. Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. See, the disciples were not ready for what awaits Jesus, and they weren't ready for what that meant to await for them in following Jesus. They weren't ready. They weren't ready. How do we know they weren't ready? Well, look at Peter's reaction in verse 32. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So the shock and awe that's getting dropped down upon the disciples leads Peter to rebuke Jesus. That in itself is very humorous. Peter rebukes Jesus. Jesus, this can't be so. You you are not seeing clearly, Jesus. Let me inform you of your lack of vision and clarity about what the Messiah's role is. No, Jesus' vision was not distorted. Peter's vision, the disciples' vision was still blurry. And maybe, maybe he sees the top more. He's seeing... That top line, the big E, is clear, but the rest, they needed God's help. They needed Jesus' help to begin to understand and grasp Jesus as Christ, but also Jesus as suffering servant. Jesus is showing us that he is the king that reigns, but he's also the, the king that came to suffer and die and rise. This is compelling. This is compelling 
And so how, how should we respond this morning to this? Well, I think one of them should be, should be worship. I love that story just before Peter's revelation. And it, and it should be one for us to just grab, grab the helpless state that we were in before we saw Jesus as he is. That, that blind man had no ability to find his way to Jesus. He was helpless. He had no way to see. He was blind. And it's a picture for us, the fact that we, we can see Jesus, reigning king and crucified, risen Christ, should humble us. Should humble us. He has granted you vision to see. The Lord, the Lord himself has led you by the hand and gave you sight so that you may see him. And it's proof that he loves you. It's proof that he loves you and it is a work of the spirit in you. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 speaks of the work of the spirit and this mystery thing that is now, that was hidden but now has seen and it is glorious. It should direct our gaze to hope and worship. Verse 9 says, But as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. He helps us see. He helps us know. He helps us hear because he loves us. And what would just be so startling and inconceivable and confusing has become precious to us has become beautiful to us. To know him as Christ and to also know him as the suffering Savior and that move us to worship. His mercy and grace doesn't allow us to, to, see, to worship him as we want to, but to see him as he truly is. And that's mercy. It's mercy that he doesn't allow us to just concoct our own version of Jesus, but he strips away the blurriness so that we can see him as he truly is. Because left to ourselves left to our sinful hearts, we would create our own God of worship, our own Savior that we want to worship. But he helps us see the one that we should truly worship, the one that we should truly trust upon. A.W. Tozer famously said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The call to worship the true God as he's revealed, not the one that we want to make up in our own hearts or what the culture would say, what the world would say, but who he has revealed himself to, to be. And so that if you could see Jesus, Savior, King, suffering Lord, as he is, that is grace, that is God's kindness, and the mercy that he doesn't leave us to just draw our own conclusions, but to see him as he truly is, is beautiful. So it should move us to worship, and it should continue to move us to dependence. Because in any given day, in any given week, our vision of Jesus gets blurry. We're, we're broken, we're fallen, we're sinful, we're led astray by our own desires, our own flesh, and, and so we need to continue to ask the Spirit, Lord Jesus, help us see you as you truly are today. Help us to see that you are more beautiful today, that you're better today. Many of you know and you've been praying for the Whiteman family and Allison and her family who suddenly lost her mom and um, spoke with her this past week and there was this stunning thing she communicated. She said, Jesus is better to me now than he was 
last Friday. In the thick of losing her mom, Jesus was better to her. How is that possible? How is that possible? Jesus' grace and kindness, the Spirit's help, his comfort, his love. So it should bring worship, it should bring dependence in it, and it should bring a call for us all to, to answer to Jesus that same question. I was talking with Josh Montague this week as we do is thinking through the text, and he just insightfully said, we can like a blurry vision of Jesus. We can like a blurry vision of Jesus. Talking with Hillary about that statement and just considering the ways we, we go to restaurants and sometimes, you know, the restaurants now, they put all the calorie counters on all the meals, right? All that's inside that you're about to eat in that giant cheeseburger. And it, you, don't, it's like you don't want to see that. If you don't see the calorie count, somehow maybe you're not responsible or accountable to that number. Ignorance is bliss is the idea. If we keep a blurry vision, we think we don't have to be responsible to demand and accountability to that. And Jesus calls us to something. When we do see him, it calls us to follow him. It calls us to die, as we will see more clearly next week. It calls us to respond to him as Lord and Savior. And so I don't know if you're here this morning and, and maybe you're resisting wanting to see him clearly and Jesus is opening your eyes but you're refusing to respond to him because you want to continue to be your own savior or turn to your own gods or your own way and your path. Respond to Jesus' call today. Jesus saying, who am I to you? Respond to his call to trust in him, to put your faith upon him, to follow him as Lord and Savior, as Christ. Well, may the Lord do that, continue to move our hearts to worship. May the Lord continue to open our eyes to see him more clearly and be dependent on the Spirit to do that. And, and may we continue to respond to that, that question, you are Christ, you are Christ. Let's pray and ask the Lord to do that in us. Lord, thank you for, thank you for leading us by the hand and touching our eyes. We were so blind and so, so stuck and helpless, and yet you helped us see. You helped us see Jesus. And even as your disciples now, we, the times that things do get blurry, and even in our, our temptations and our hard hearts, Lord, we, we don't like the, the call that the gospel demands of us. Um, you're gracious and you're kind, Jesus, to supply grace for us to help, help us see more clearly. You're patient for, uh, to us to, to allow those lenses to drop and uh, we can see another line of your beauty, another line of your glory, another line of your kindness and faithfulness in your son Jesus to us in his exaltation and his glory and in his humiliation and his mercy that he would come and, and take our place upon the cross and suffer for our sins so that we could have fellowship with you, that we could see you as Christ. God, that is, that is mercy and kindness. So help us to see more clearly that Jesus would be better. 
Jesus would be better to us. And that you would move upon whoever's heart is in here today or online, that they're, they're wanting to be okay with the blurry vision of Jesus. And Jesus, you're calling them to respond in faith and repentance. Would you, would you allow them to step and to die to themselves and throw themselves on Christ and find salvation and hope and find true life, true seeing, true hope, Amen.